Matthew chapter 19. Let's look at verses 1 through 15. In what I'm labeling five perspectives on divorce. Now, when you read five perspectives on divorce, and you try to understand those words, you might think I am communicating that there is five different ways that divorce can be viewed. I don't want you to think that. Instead, I want you to think that there are five different views that people have in our passage when they're talking about divorce. There's only one acceptable view on divorce, and that's going to be the position of Scripture. We'll talk about what that would look like in just a few moments. So Matthew chapter 19, let's go with 1 through 15. I have 1 through 12 on the screen for you, so when we get to the bottom... You'll either have to follow along in your own Bible or just wait for us. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And a large crowd followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and, and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case... <clears throat> of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he, being Jesus, said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Father, we thank you for the time together. We thank you for a new year, for a new start to the calendar, but Father, it so often also communicates a renewal in our minds, and I ask that that renewal and that new thinking <clears throat> would be focused on you. I ask that you would bless our time this evening in your word, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So let me remind you where we are in Matthew. This is his last teaching section, all the way through chapter 20. And in chapter 21, that is the triumphal entry. So to give you a little perspective, you know, I mentioned I was a little excited on how far we were. We have one more evening that will be in Matthew chapter 19. Then when we get to chapter 20, we have the laborers in the vineyard, a mother's request, Jesus healing two blind men. So we'll cover Matthew chapter 20 in about two weeks. So we're about three Matthew sessions away from Jesus entering Jerusalem for his last week of his life. So that's why it's kind of exciting when you see where we are in the book of Matthew. But as we look at this section on divorce, I want to remind you where we were last year. When we looked at Matthew chapter 18, we talked about two different themes. Do you guys remember what those themes were? Go ahead. If you've got your Bible, look back at chapter 18. And see if maybe you can come up with what were one of those themes. Yes, sir. Um, what to do if someone 
Excellent. What do you do if someone wrongs you? All right. Do you remember what the other theme was? The parallel to it. Well, the parallel to it, it's going to be the humility. There was this level of forgiveness that we saw with what do you do if someone wrongs you, and then there is this humility you're supposed to have. And so those are the two sessions that we talked about in chapter 18. I want you to consider this as Matthew organizes all of his arguments. You guys have written papers. Everyone's at least written a paper once in your life, right? Okay. Rachel, have you ever written a paper? All right. Did they check your grammar? Okay. Right after he teaches on humility and he teaches on forgiveness, Matthew puts divorce right there. Why would Jesus teach on divorce? I mean, that's not a good thing. He taught on humility. That's a good thing. He taught on forgiveness and how do you reconcile when you've been wronged. That's a good thing. And now it's talking, I mean, divorce is not good. It's because those two things are critical, the humility and the forgiveness. If they're present, divorce is not. Mason, the failure of Israel to have the humility that Christ says to the, extend the forgiveness that Christ, Christ taught them leads to them getting divorced. So that's why in the line of his argumentation, why Matthew has put all this together, he wants you to see that if you ignore chapter 18, be prepared for chapter 19. You guys get that? So I have five perspectives that I want you to see tonight. Number one, the first perspective is the desire for divorce. So what do I mean by that? Look at chapter 19, verse 1. We'll set ourselves up and get the context of where we are in our passage. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee, and he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. You guys know I'm a little bit of a geography nerd when it comes to Israel. Where did Jesus just move from and to? Do you know? Could you put it on a map? My Sunday school class, the last couple weeks of 2023, we had spent some time looking at a map, drawing it out ourselves, labeling things. Do you know where Jesus just moved to? Do you know where he moved from? He, just, he moved from Galilee. He moves from Galilee to where? Judea. Judea. All right, but where are those places? They are in Israel. Blake, you've got a Bible in your hand. There's got to be a map in the back, right? Several of you have cell phones. You can't look up a map of Israel. You can do this for me. Izzy's got a map. Does that map have Galilee on it? Does your map have Judea on it? We're looking at where is Galilee, where is Judea, what are those places? Alright, all you young whippersnappers got showed up by the old guy. He's <laughs> I said whippersnappers. That was the point. Okay. He's heading south. He's gone from Galilee in the north, the upper region of Israel... He's gone south, passing Samaria. He, would have ta he takes the regular travel route where he would have crossed the Jordan and gone down through the region of Perea. And now he's in the south, the southern portion of Israel called Judea. And we know he's beyond the Jordan, meaning he's on. when you're looking at your map, he's on the right side. When he crosses, the left, crosses to the left side, he'll go up into the hills... And there in the hills of Judea, he's going to find the capital of Israel. What's the name of the capital of Israel? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. More of you should have known that and had it on the tip of your tongue. You had food in your mouth, right, Brian? That was it. Okay. So geographically, I want you to think about this. Jesus is at the bottom of the hills. He's down in the low country. And as he goes to the top of those hills, he's going to die. We're not far from his death. Now, he can't physically see Jerusalem from where he is, but he knows it's up there. Then we see that these large crowds follow him. And he starts healing them. This trip 
is Jesus' last trip from Galilee to Jerusalem. Now, I want you to kind of put yourself in those, those shoes for just a moment. I don't know whether or not you've ever experienced this in your life, but have you ever had a relationship with someone that, that as you left, you knew it was the last time? Whether you went to go see a grandparent who was on their deathbed and you knew that when you left grandma's house or left the hospital, you would probably never see grandma again. Because you knew that she was going to be passing from this life into the next. Or maybe you knew that, hey, we went to visit the house that we used to live in, and then we were moving and we were PCSing to a new town, and you were never going to see your old house again, the one that you had known all those years. Any of you ever had a moment like that where you knew you're leaving for the last time? All right? What, can, that, can we not get, extend that to the Son of God? who was fully man and fully God, he's well aware, Samantha, that he's never going back to Galilee. His hometown, his home territory, his home base, he's never going back. And now he experiences these Pharisees who come up to him in verse 3, and they start testing him. They don't want to have conversations so that they can learn. They're poking and prodding. Okay, Like they're teasing him. Do you like to be teased? No. no one does. They're pushing him, seeing if they can get a rise out of him. And they say, Jesus, got a question for you. Now someone tell me, what's the question that they asked Jesus? Is it lawful to divorce your wife? Alright, is it lawful, is it legal to divorce one's wife for any cause? That's the question. Now let's get a little background on this. When were they allowed to divorce? Well, if we go back to Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, and this is what they're quoting, when a man takes his wife, Moses records, and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because, why? He has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, and he puts it in her hand, and he sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. Now, it goes on in the passage, but this is where it comes from. Moses told the people of Israel, if a man divorces his wife, this is kind of what happens, and it's because he has found some indecency in her. Now, you read the word indecency in our translations, what do you think of? What comes to mind? What is the meaning of some indecency in her? What is it? What would it mean to you? Sexual immorality. All right, sexual immorality. She's not been faithful in their marriage. Anything else? Is that the only definition of indecency? How many of you be like, yeah, that that's that's where I put it. How many of you are like, I have no idea what the word indecent means. I, I, would, I don't think that today's vernacular uses <coughs> for sexual immorality. I think that today's vernacular uses that for nakedness or okay. something that's that's lewd behavior. <coughs> that you would, you know, because the most common use probably would be, you know, public indecency or something like that. Right, public indecency, that would be how we would use it. Or a flaw. flaw. All right, or a flaw. Do you, now, hey, let's not assume things. I got it. We, you're teenagers, but we do have to discuss this. Okay. When we say public indecency, how many of you understand what that is? Okay, so you're at least tracking, all right? I don't want to use words and you not understand them. So if you don't understand a word, all right, by all means, ask me. So the question is, what's indecent, right? Do you see that on the screen? If you find indecency in your wife, you could divorce her. So the next question is, okay, Moses, what's indecent mean? I'm glad you asked. Because as we talk about this, the Pharisees ask this question. I'm going to read it, and I want you to look at what I have on the screen. And I'll read the verse one more time. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking. So the Pharisees are asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, the Pharisees say one's wife, referring to, as a man, 
Am I allowed to divorce my, divorce my wife for any cause? When we look at Mark, you guys remember, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels. They're the gospels that kind of record the same story the same way. When we look at Mark's account, Jesus' response is not just from the male perspective. So what that means is, they ask the question, do men get to do this? And Jesus' response, the way Mark records it, is no men or women don't get to do this. Look at Mark 10 and 11. 10, 11, and 12. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So they're going, and I know this is weird. Our culture is very different. Okay, but you're growing up in a culture where as a female, you have equal rights as a man. You can buy your own car, you can gain your own debt, you can register to vote when you're 18, you can do all the things legally that a man gets to do. Right, ladies? Yeah? Is there anything you're legally not allowed to do? Not, not anymore, but that's not always been the case. Not 100 years ago. They can't be drafted. They can't be drafted. Does anyone actually get drafted anymore? <laughs> okay. So legally, ladies, you have all the legal right that a man does. In Jewish culture, Carter, women had no right. These men could quite literally divorce their wives on the spot, and she had no legal repercussion. She couldn't take him to court and say, that's it, I'm taking half your salary. She couldn't take him to court and say, you got to help pay for the kids. She had nothing. And even in the, within our culture, Pastor Jonathan referenced it. Okay, women's suffrage. You guys know what suffrage is, right? History test? History quiz? Mm -hmm. All right, what's suffrage? <clears throat> the right to vote. Women didn't always have the right to vote in our country. But Jesus sets the record straight when the Pharisees ask, whether or not these men get to do this, we as men get to do this. He says, no, men or women don't get to. Now, why is that important? These men are coming to Jesus, and they're trying to trick him. And Jesus says, actually, I'm going to hold everyone to the same standard. Now, this indecency, what does indecent mean? When they come to Jesus and say, can we divorce for any cause? There are these rabbinical schools. Now, I say the word rabbinical. Someone tell me, what does rabbinical refer to? Rabbis. What's the word rabbi mean in English? Good. There are two teaching schools, if you will, of thought. One of them is the Shammai school. And the Shammai school would say, so Shammai would be this rabbi, and his understanding, his interpretation, because keep in mind, this is how the old, or excuse me, your Old Testament and into your New Testament would have understood everything. They would have read the Old Testament and they'd be like, that's confusing. And so they'd go and they'd say, hey, Ella Kate, could you explain this for me? And Ella Kate would be like, well, yeah, because I'm a rabbi and I know what the law says. And so Ella Kate would tell us this is what the law means. And then we go on our way. And when we start acting a particular, we say, well, Ella Kate told me this is what the law means. That makes sense? Now, Elocate, you're not a rabbi. Shemai was. Hillel also was. But they had different perspectives. Shemai said, if it was something truly indecent, much like what Sean said, sexual immorality, unfaithfulness, public indecency, something like that, then that was your any cause. But Zoe, you have Hillel, that would be like, anything literally. If she burnt your toast, divorce her. If the bed was not made properly, divorce her. If she forgot your birthday, divorce her. That was his perspective. Because his perspective... yeah, Zach, if she got mud in your truck, divorce her. Okay, well, if she cleaned your truck without asking, you can divorce her. All right. <laughs> Like, that was Hillel's idea, was for any reason I can divorce. I don't have to, it doesn't need to really be indecent, indecent. It could just be something I don't like. 
That's what they want to know. They're saying, hey, Jesus, you're a rabbi. Our rabbis over here, you know, Ella, Kate, and Samantha, they disagree on what this is. So, Jesus, you weigh in and tell us which one of these rabbis is right. That's what they're asking. And Jesus gives them an answer and basically says they're both wrong. So the Pharisees come to Jesus with a desire for divorce. We want divorce, and we want it on our terms. So Jesus, please clarify for this how this, was supposed, how this works. Jesus' response is actually not answering their question in so much as this one over that one. He says, no, here is actually the design from the beginning for divorce. So now we're going to look at the design before divorce. So this is God's perspective. Look at verse 4 with me. He answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Verse 5. And he answered and he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, Jesus' response, now someone tell me, where is he quoting from? Okay, I heard lots of mumbling, someone now project with it. Genesis, okay, well that's one of any 50 chapters. Where is he quoting from in Genesis? Genesis 1.27. Now, if you go and look at your Genesis 1.27, it might be a little different, but Jesus is quoting from the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint is just a big fancy word that means what? What does Septuagint mean? Law. No, it doesn't mean law. Retranslation of the Hebrew language. All right. So Sean's helping you guys out. You all can thank him later. It is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Make sense, Logan? So they took a Hebrew Bible, they translated it into Greek, and they, that's what they called the Septuagint. It's represented by three letters. Anyone know what three letters it's represented by? What, Blake? LXX. LXX. Excellent. Do you know why it's LXX? Those are numbers. They are numbers. Which mean what? Chapters. Seven books. It means 70, but what's the 70 represent? 70 books. Nope. There's not 70 books in the Old Testament. Yeah, it's the translators. Oh, okay. Yeah. Year-wise, it would have been completed about B.C. 250, 200, somewhere in there. So, Jesus tells them, here's what God said in the first chapter of your Bible. In what we commonly, and maybe you've heard this before, we commonly refer to as leave and cleave. Now, it's not cleave in the sense of like meat cleaver, because that'd be kind of fun, right? No? You guys even know what a cleaver is in the sense of a knife? Yeah. Okay. I don't know how that would be fun. <laughs> Depends on who's holding the knife. If it's me, it's more fun than someone else. All right, at least six of them are paying attention. So it's not the runaway with a knife. It is two aspects of the same command. What it is, Tyler, is you are supposed to leave your parents, and as you detach from your parents, you are to reattach or to unite with your spouse. So God's command from Genesis chapter 1 that Jesus repeats and says, here's the design for divorce, it's actually not designed. That's the whole point. You leave your parents, you unite with your spouse, end of the story. What God put together, don't let people separate. That's what verse 6 tells us. So they, being the husband and wife, who have both collectively left their families... They have joined together. They're no longer two, but they are one flesh. And he says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So in this verse, you tell me, whose idea is marriage? God's. Whose idea is divorce? Man. Man. Students, we have to understand that from, from the very beginning. I understand some of you are 12 years old and marriage to the opposite gender is the last thing on your mind, okay? Yes, Samantha, the opposite gender. No, it's not like you were talking about... Never mind, never mind. Okay. 
Okay. Some of you are 16, 17, you're like, I like the concept of a girlfriend. Like, I don't know about that whole, like, forever thing, but, you know, I'd like someone to at least text me back when I text them. Okay. Girlfriend, boyfriend, that's the whole point. And you start going that direction. And then you get to the place where, you know, where Blake is, and he's, like, got that lady that he wants to take out to restaurants and, like, spend quality time with her. Okay, just her and him and everyone in the restaurant, very public settings. And we like to think that because we put that relationship together, that we're the ones who get to separate it. It starts as teenagers, and it goes all the way, we take it into marriage. But that's not the case. And Jesus reminds them something that students, and I know this, I will say this as euphemistically as I can. The one flesh union, the uniting of two physical bodies into one, was designed by God for marriage. And you have to understand... You can't undo it. Okay? The physical union between two individuals becoming one, the one flesh union, is not something that you can hit backspace on. You cannot control, alt, delete, and reset. You cannot delete the document. It cannot be undone. And the reason you can't undo it is because God created it to be permanent. If that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, we will read this one verse because I don't want you to think this is my opinion. Paul, to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6.18 says that we as believers are supposed to flee, run away from sexual immorality. Why, Paul? Because every other sin that a person commits is outside their body. Lying, stealing, cheating, cursing, it's all outside the body. But sexual immoral people, they sin against their own body. Because what God designed to be a part of marriage is being used in the wrong manner. And while we're discussing it very briefly, Anything, even if it's not the full actualization of the one flesh union, any representation of the one flesh union is to be exclusively for the marriage between a man and a woman. So now that we've seen the desire for divorce, we've seen God's design for divorce, now we're going to look at some delirium or some confusion over that divorce. So if that's what it's supposed to be, Jesus, these Pharisees now ask, then why did Moses command? Now when we use the word command, someone explain to me, what does the word command mean? Give me a definition of the word command. Imperative. It's an imperative. Excellent. Someone give me a definition of an imperative. Something you're expected to do. Yeah, something you're expected to do. You have to do this. Not optional. Laying down the law. Alright. So why did Moses command one? Now notice, because words matter. They want to know, well then why did Moses command us to do this? Why did he command one, being the man, to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Because they're confused about the entire thing. They're in a state of utter delirium. You guys know what delirium is, right? It's confusion, discombobulation, disillusionment. Alright? In case you're wondering, I spent way too much time looking at thesauruses for all of my alliteration. I'm not into thesaurus. Yeah. Alright? But they're confused. So what does Jesus do? Jesus brings up that actually that they're disgraced because of divorce. Look at what he says in verse 8. 
Jesus gives them yet another perspective. You guys are in complete disgrace over this. You're way off. You're wrong. He said to them, verse 8, because of your hardness. Now, the conversation has gone very pointed at this point. It was very much a back and forth. And now Jesus says, because of whose hardness of heart? Your. Your. But whose hardness of heart was it that is actually the cause for the whole divorce thing to begin with? Who, Tyler? No, whose hardness of heart, though? Yeah, what people, though? Okay, the Jews, but the Jews living when? In Moses' time. 1446 B.C., we have the written law coming from Moses on Mount Sinai. 1445, even if it took that long, 1444 B.C., 14, 1500 years before these men that Jesus is speaking to are even breathing, that's when this allowment for divorce was put in. But Jesus says, because of your hard hearts. Brian, he doesn't say, because of the hard hearts of the people of Israel in Moses' day. Now, it was them. But Jesus is not pointing at them. Why is he able to point at them in utter disgrace and say, it's your fault? <clears throat> Why? Because they're the ones right here in front of him asking, how do I get to divorce my wife? Can you tell me how? I need to know how I can get out of this thing. I want to know what I'm allowed to do to get out. And Jesus says, your hard heart. It's the same hard heart that was then. You're no different than them. But because of your hardness of heart, Moses, what's the next word? Allowed. Now, what the word allowed is very different from which word we just saw in verse 7. Let me go back. What word in verse 7 did Moses do? Moses commanded. But now in verse 8, Moses is doing what? Allowing. Okay, good, Blake. You're pointing out the fact that it's passive versus active. What Moses permitted because of the word of the Lord is very different than what Moses commanded via the word of the Lord. Does that make sense? This may happen, but it's not God's instruction for it to happen. Do you see the difference? It's not a command from God. He says, because of your sin, your disgrace, it was permitted. It was allowed. There were circumstances in which it may have happened. But I need you to know, from the beginning, that was not the case. It was not so. So let's ask ourselves this question. Students, why does divorce exist? What, James? Because of sin. Okay, can you give it to me in the words of Jesus out of Matthew chapter 19? Really? Because of the hardness of our hearts. Because of the hardness of our hearts, divorce exists. Which means, students, if you don't have a soft heart, divorce may be an option. Which goes right back into what we talked about in chapter 18 with the humility and the forgiveness. Those are soft-hearted items that we would possess. Divorce, that's hard-hearted. That's there is no forgiveness. That's there is no humility. And Jesus says, for I say to you, now he adds some clarification. So they want to know, is Shammai or Hillel right? Which one is right, Jesus? One of them says, I can divorce her if she burns the toast. The other says, <clears throat> it has to be truly indecent. Jesus says, verse 9, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now, I'll be honest and transparent with you. This is often called, and there's pretty uniform explanation on what it's called, what it means, very different. People pretty much agree and label this the exception clause. All right? 
You see why they would call it the exception clause? It says except for sexual immorality. What it means is, is there a way out of my marriage? Is there a way out of this marriage? And depending on who you read and who you ask, there are different opinions. Some would say that absolutely under no circumstances should there be a divorce. Some would say if there was true sexual immorality, then yes, there can be a divorce. Some would say, well, it doesn't really matter. If you guys just can't get along, then go ahead and divorce. And they use other Bible verses to explain their position. But Jesus tells them that except it be for <clears throat> what? That they can get divorced. Where would Jesus say this is where the line has to be? What did Jesus say was the one case, the one circumstance where it may be allowed? Anna? Sexual immorality. Alright, some of you um, know some language, not foul language, just biblical language. You know what word comes behind sexual immorality? I'll tell you the word and then you can tell me what word in our language comes from it. Pornea. You know what word in our language come, derives from that. Is Jesus saying if that happens, that that's the, that's the exception clause you need? Or is it sexual immorality in the sense of the one flesh union involving someone other than your spouse? Does that enable them to get divorced? It's a tough question to ask. And to be honest, the more you will spend time as older teenagers thinking about this and solidifying in your heart what God says and whether or not you are going to live out your life the way God says you should, the more it's settled in your mind and heart now, the easier the decisions are later. Yes, Sean? Matthew 5.32, the word unchastity is used. And unchastity typically would have meant one of three things. Unfaithfulness during a period of the um, uh, dating period Basically, if they were engaged. Yep, the betrothal period. Yeah, the betrothal period. If it was a near relative or if it would have been uh, uh, cheating, basically. Right. Infidelity. Infidelity. Yeah, John. And you know, that's one reason I think that there was a period of betrothal period because they didn't have the technology we had. So they had needed some time to find out if somebody had been faithful or not. And this is what is so stark and, and amazing about the birth of Christ because Joseph was a man who could have mm -hmm. right. legally, mm -hmm. without judgment, put Mary away. But we see what kind of man he was because he decided to take the heat and the judgment that would certainly come along with this um, perceived infidelity. Yeah. Yeah. He originally said, send her away. Right. Right. And then an angel of the Lord came Yes, sir. Don't do that. <clears throat> It's a great question, and we're gonna. If I don't answer that by the end of tonight, make sure we right. talk again. Okay, I think I might answer your question because that that's a question that has to come up. So in First Corinthians chapter seven, this is probably the most clear understanding on the subject that I think we could have. So go there in your Bible. When we read the Bible, whether or not you do this or not, you should. I'll say it quip in, a, in a quippy fashion, and then I'll explain what I mean. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. What that means is, let the Bible explain what the Bible means. And typically, the way we do that is when there is something said in an older period of time, we look for what the Bible says after that to help explain what was said before that. Does that make sense? Jesus is doing that in our very passage. It was said in excuse me, it was said in Genesis chapter one, and now Jesus is adding to and clarifying it in Matthew chapter nineteen. Do you understand that concept? You guys get that? God said it in Genesis chapter 1 through Moses. 
Jesus comments and clarifies it for us in Matthew chapter 19. And now I'm going to suggest to you what we also do is we take what Jesus says, and to help understand what Jesus says, let's look at what God wrote in His Word after what Jesus said that He wants us to also know. That's why we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now concerning matters that you've written to me, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time so that you could devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not, be, may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now is a concession, not a command, I say this. So here's where we are thus far. Paul said, when two people become one flesh, stay one flesh. That's how you keep Satan out of the marriage. Now, as a concession, as an allowance, not a command. You guys see that? We have the word concession in 1 Corinthians 7. It's the same idea as an allowance. What does Paul say? I wish that all were as myself, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and another, and one to another. So he says, I wish everyone was actually unmarried like I am. But that's not the case. To the unmarried and, and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, just like I am. If you're single and you're content to remain single, stay single. It's, and I will say this, and I will, there's a big asterisk at the end of it, students. It's not against God's will for someone to be single their whole life. However, if that person who is single is, as Paul says in the next verse, but if they cannot exercise self-control, then they should get married. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion within yourself. There are individuals who can remain unmarried their entire life and not struggle. But if you are a person who struggles, you need to marry somebody. Not just anybody, okay? There's more in that conversation. I can't get into it right now. All right, now let's look at verse 10. But to the married, I give this charge, not I, this is the Lord. Paul says, here is what the husband and wife should do. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should not go. It's not good that she goes. If she does go, she is to remain unmarried or else to be reconciled to get the relationship fixed to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. Now he says, this is kind of my, my opinion, Paul says. God did not tell me to write this. This is what I'm suggesting to you. Alright, verse 12 again. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, so if a man is married to a woman who is not a believer, and she consents or is willing to continue to be married to him, then he should not divorce her. You cannot divorce, according to Paul, you can't divorce someone because they're an unbeliever. If they're happy to stay, stay. And I could give you examples specifically of women in this church that have done so. Had unbelieving husbands, and they stayed married to them. If any woman who has a husband that's unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Why? For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So Paul explains it like this, and people disagree on what this means. I'll tell you what I would suggest it means. You don't know, students... If you end up someday in a marriage to an unbeliever and you're a believer, you don't know to what degree you will affect your spouse or your children because you remain faithful to your marriage even if it's an unbeliever. 
But then Paul says this, verse 15, But if the unbeliever, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such a case, the brother or the sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. If you're married to an unbelieving spouse and they divorce you, okay, you can't change that. So Paul's perspective is that intimacy was for marriage, marriage was for intimacy, that union was for the spouse, self-control is of the utmost importance, do not separate, if you do separate, stay unmarried or reconcile, if the unbeliever stays, great, if the unbeliever leaves, okay, you can't stop them. Because you don't know to what degree you will have a sanctifying effect or a making holy effect on that spouse. Now, Sarah asked the question, what do you do if it's abusive? Great question. I'm going to let the other adults take their, give their answer first. Let First, let's define our terms. What's abuse, Sarah? How? So we have to we have to understand what is abuse, because not all abuse is the same abuse. So what abuse are we talking about? All right. Are there only two types of abuse: physical and mental, or emotional? I should say. Are there other types of abuse? Then what are they? Okay. Would you not put sexual abuse in the physical abuse category? Could you also separate it? Let me give you a um, point in case. Paul just told us that the husband and the wife are supposed to be united in the one flesh union. Correct? If a spouse doesn't, ever, is that not sexual abuse? Could it be described as? Oh, I'm trying to be very as vague as, vague as I can for those who it would be above their head. That there is no marital union between the husband and wife. Okay, so you would, you, Rachel, you would say that's mentally abusive. Okay. Okay, but it could go both ways. It could be for the wife or for the husband. So that's where, see, when we use the word abuse, we like to just broad brush it and say, well, across the board, it's abusive. And it can't be simply because they won't. Maybe it's because they can't. Are you allowed, if your husband or your wife gets in a car accident and they're paralyzed from the next down and, and intimacy is now gone for the rest of your life, is that, is that sexually abusive? So see, in, a, in one category, the abstinence, if you will, is acceptable and in the other it's not. You guys understand what abstinence is? Not one flesh union? Okay. So then we talk about, okay, well, is it physical abuse? Is it sexual abuse? Is it emotional abuse? What about financial abuse? What if one spouse makes all the money and doesn't give money to the other spouse? And they're basically leaving you to financially scrape by. Okay. And then there is true mental abuse. You guys know this if you've ever had me in a class. Um, I like to mess with kids' heads sometimes. Um, okay, but what if that was within a marriage and it was not, you know, playful jesting? It was literally the constant yelling and mind games where they're, mess you know, literally trying to get inside someone's head. See, we've just described, like, what, five, six different kinds of, quote-unquote, abuse, right? When does it become abuse? After it happens one time? Multiple. Okay, so let's just, let's say for example, we'll, we'll take it off the, the marriage concept for just a second. 
Um, and because Blake and I are have a great relationship, I can um, suggest punching him because he knows I never would. If I punch Blake one time, am I abusing him? Does it matter? Because let's be honest, Blake, in the context we're talking about, it's not just that you did or did not do something wrong or right. It's my perception. See, we're right back to the conversation about the divorce for any reason. Did she really burn the toast? Or did he think it was burnt? Was it burnt to his taste? Right? There's so much nuance to this that if we're not careful, and Sarah, this is why it's difficult. It is hard. And I'll let Pastor Jonathan jump in at any point in time because I know he has some personal experience with this within his family. That you can't just say one thing and then be like, that's it. They, they financially abused me. They verbally abused me. They physically abused me. What is the context? What was going on? And I'm not saying you don't believe the person, but you at least need to ask some questions about it. So what would be your thoughts, Jonathan? Because I know, I know you've wrestled with it, because we've kind of talked some. Well, my first thought is, man, I wish it was in there. And I wish it would clarify. I wish the scripture would have clarified the situation. But my first thought is, it just doesn't directly address this. My second thought is the, the, the context in which it was given is so different than what we're used to. Um, it's, it's, we have to think carefully about bridging any type of things because, frankly, let's just be honest, women and children and slaves and cattle were all viewed as possessions by men back then. It just was the case. Yep. Yes. So anything given in this context was written in that context. And we know that Christianity is different. It was different because it gave women, um, I mean, if you look at this, I mean, Paul talks about men and women and the fact that a woman could be an effect upon the male. That was unusual in, in, this, in this day and age. Um, <clears throat> thirdly, some things have never changed. The exploitation of women and children has, has always been around historically. Men have always sinned against them. Just because that's true doesn't mean it's right. And God has never planned for the man to do that to women. But we know it's a reality. And so the fourth thing is we have to live in a world, a fallen world of sin and reality. This is why I love the church. Because if the church works properly, we can get together in a situation and we can help another brother or sister out. And we can talk and observe and assess the situation. I do wish the teeth had a little more teeth, uh, the church had a little more teeth in its punishment because if we find a man abusing a wife, we can't go over there and beat him silly like they used to do, maybe, um, legally. We just can't in our society that we live in. Legally. 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 Right. But if we wear ski masks, maybe, be maybe before God it would be okay. But the fact of the matter is we have to rely on the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> the scripture is clear. I, as an individual talking to myself, must make sure I am not self-centered in decisions about my relationship with my wife. If I, in God's sovereign plan, got married, as was the case of one of my daughters, to a man who pretended to be a Christian for a while, but then just turned totally the other way and abusive, both physically and emotionally, you know, it's tough. It's tough, and people have different opinions. Um, even in my own family, people have different opinions. Some of my family believes, well, she should have just remained unmarried forever, as Paul literally said. And then, you know, and I've thought many hours about this and honestly I don't have one solid good answer um, except for rely on the Holy Spirit and, the, and also the church and surround yourself by people who love God alright Sean you, ready, you wanted to chime in and um, I'll, I'll wrap us up yeah I, 
the only there's there's no clear like like Pastor Jonathan said there's no clear answer but I think if we look through Ephesians 5 and we look at being imitators of God beloved children walking in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you offering the sacrifice to God but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you this is a professing Christian or not then when we look at Ephesians and we look at what does immorality in the new covenant look like I think it points to it was a different look in the Old mm -hmm. Testament the way women and children were viewed in the New Testament, it's very clear. If you look at the relationship of the home life, wives be subject to your husbands as the Lord, and, the, and then you look at husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church, that's a clear evidence that it's going directly against everything Paul talked about in Ephesians, the way a biblical marriage is supposed to look. Yeah. Um, and then secondly, the church clearly doesn't have a definitive answer on that with divorce because for immorality and unchastity um, there's people that are divorced that run uh, multiple divorces that run Sunday schools right here at Berean and so Berean hasn't taken a stance on what that looks like um, if they have they sort of you know leave it up to the individual I guess to wrestle with that to themselves but if somebody hasn't been part of a divorce but they marry a divorced person that has both had someone an unbeliever walk away or that person has been multiple occasions um, has not been faithful to their marriage then where does that lead you? Yeah. I would also say the one thing we haven't even talked about is the fact that some folk you know they they weren't even saved at the time um, and so when we try to think about this like as in retroactive it doesn't really work that Paul is commanding the church this is what I want you to do moving forward Mm -hmm. So right. we know that there is no sin that cannot be forgiven um, except for the unpardonable sin, which we know is not sexual immorality and divorce. So um, God can bring you back. God has a future for you even if this is in your past. Um, and so we don't want to use it as an excuse moving forward because the command is clear. God wants you to stay together. Yeah. Paul, Paul underlines yeah, that. Sure. So in closing, and then... Um, We'll come back to this. In fact, we'll <clears throat> probably just next week. So Sarah, and I, I'm going to read the screen and explain it. Marriage is a picture of something that's bigger than you. It's something that's bigger than me. And Pastor Jonathan and Sean have both alluded to it, that it's, it's supposed to be a picture to the world of God with his people. Um, and what that looks like, kind of changes and has some nuance depending on the circumstances. I will, I will say this, and we'll talk about it more because it's in my slides, is there are some preventative things that we can do, that you can do, so that you're not in that position. And then once you're in one of those positions, you have to ask yourself, what is the most God-honoring thing to do? Okay, well, the most God-honoring thing is if a female is in a situation where she is being used as a human punching bag, it's for her to move out of that house and get safe. Which is why being a part of a local church is so important because that's where, as a church, we should come along beside that individual and say, hey, you know what, we've got a family you can go stay with. Hey, we'll, co we'll cover the cost of a hotel for a couple nights until we can find a, a church family for you to stay with. And, and we're going to kind of figure this out. And hopefully the church is going to come along and say, hey, dude, why are you touching her? Because you should not be laying your hands on her. If it's one of these other nuanced abuses, okay, that's where we go back into chapter 18, where how do we, someone's offended me. It can be your spouse. You've offended me in this way, and he hit me, and he's not stopping the hitting. Tell the church about it. Which students, ask yourself this question. If you stop being a part of a local assembly when you graduate and you're not being made to come to church anymore, who's your backup then? I'm not telling you to come to church so that you have you know, a, a group or a tribe to kind of support you. That's one of the tertiary benefits of being in a community. But ask yourself that question. Who are you going to turn to if it's just you and your spouse and things get dicey? 
because you've left the church behind. That's where godly counsel, godly wisdom, what Matthew 18 prescribed, that's where that stuff helps us. So here's what I, I will ask of you guys. If you have a question about one something in this conversation, we'll come back next week and we'll finish it up. Um, I want you to be prepared to ask it. I want you to ask clarifying questions because this is tough. Half the people in, in America get divorced. All right? I don't. I would have to take a few moments to think about each and every one of your families, but a good number of you have come or are affected by divorced families. So it's it's here. We have to deal with it. But we have to ask ourselves, God, how do you want me to think about this? Because we are called to think about it the way God wants us to think about it. Father, thank you for the time. Thank you for some great discussion around your word. I ask that you would dismiss us and give us the wisdom that we need to walk worthy of the lives that you have called us to have. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.